Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and you're listening to The New Bazaar. Today, we are featuring a very special Ask Cardiff and Meet Amy edition of The New Bazaar. And we're actually going to take those in reverse order. Amy Keene. Hi. Yes, how are you? I'm good. Um, It's really nice to be here. It's really nice to be in front of the mic. I was doing some calculations today, and I used to host a podcast Realized today that this is the first time I've been in front of the mic all year. All year. So thanks for having me. Yeah, we should tell people who you are. You used to host a podcast for the Financial Times. Yes. Where you also ran the podcasting operations for a until time. last year, until earlier this year, actually. Mm-hmm. And now you're my business partner. Your business partner, also, quite fortunately, executive producer of this show. That's and right. I'm here with you today to answer some listener questions. I'm going to pretend to be you, and you're going to be our guest. Okay. Uh, you're going to be essentially the avatar yes. for the listeners. Don't worry. I'm not going to have... try to be Cardiff. I'm going to <laughs> read Cardiff um, and introduce to Cardiff listener questions, and he's going to answer them right. in a special end-of-the-year episode. Yes. Our listeners basically sent us emails. Sometimes they sent us voice memos with their questions. Some tweeted at us, and we've basically chosen from amongst those questions. And we've picked the ones that we think are going to be fun to answer, but also the ones that are broad enough in scope that we think they've kind of inspired some potential future episodes of the show. So yeah, we loved all your questions. Thanks to everybody who wrote in. And if you don't hear your question asked today, uh, it's just because we only have so much time, but we really appreciate it. Please keep writing in and we love you. Thank you. And I've just always wanted to say this. So here it is. Okay, first question is from a listener, Bonnie Gertzen. Let's just play it. Hey, Cardiff and Amy. It's Bonnie Gertzen from Fort Collins, Colorado. I wanted to send you a question that's been on my mind lately. It's about how companies are pricing their goods and services. It used to be that pricing was done individually. You would go buy one TV or one haircut. More recently, we've started seeing companies use a subscription model. Some examples are Netflix or Amazon Prime or even Quicken. And as a consumer, we ended up with unlimited use for a fixed period of time and then a continuous renewal where we're not involved in a new sales transaction. And now more recently, we're even seeing a new model, which is I would call cut of a transaction model. And some examples here are like credit card fees that are charged to the merchant or delivery fees to restaurants or even the routing of high-frequency trades. And what's significant about these is that the consumers are not directly involved in that transaction at all. I'm interested in if any of these new models are better or worse for our economy. Especially, I'm curious about the innovation, company growth, how it impacts the consumers, and even the country overall. Personally, I feel like all revenue is not equal, and I'm also concerned that some of these are a bit predatory and potentially damaging to the economy in the long term. I'd be really interested in what your thoughts are on this. Thanks so much for listening to my question. So here's where I would start. Uh, Bonnie, thanks for that question, and you're absolutely right that there's a lot of models for how to price things that are being tested now, new models for pricing things that are being tested now in new arenas, mainly because the economy has become so digitized. And I think a good place to start answering this question is by talking about the delivery fees that, like, 
Grubhub and DoorDash and these other companies charge. These are these delivery services that Bonnie brought up in her example. Yeah. You use these, right? Yeah, and actually never more so than in the last couple of years. Right. They've become increasingly useful. By the way, the technology to do this is relatively new. It's from like roughly within the last decade, and nobody likes it. (laughs) (laughs) Including the drivers. (laughs) Including the drivers because there's there's all these allegations of like not being treated very well, not being paid very well. And so on. But also the restaurants hate it because they yes. have to pay these services. They have to pay these companies like huge, huge commissions. Cut, yeah. yeah. Customers don't always love it because it's a little unclear what the fees are that they're paying. So it just seems like a market that could be better. Absolutely. Okay. It's getting better. How? Well, think about it this way. Within the last couple of years, restaurants obviously started complaining about this. Some customers did too. And in New York City specifically... There was legislation passed that capped the fees that can be charged to restaurants as a way of helping out restaurants during the pandemic, because obviously they were struggling. But also restaurants themselves have started developing the technology to provide this service themselves. Right. So they can handle the sort of the full order from start to finish, including delivery. Which they want to have that kind of control, right? Like they don't want to be associated with a bad service if the delivery companies are doing a bad job. So regulation... The fact that restaurants can respond by creating the technology to sort of circumvent the middleman. And in some cases, you know, if a lot of people dislike these companies, then new companies can maybe develop uh, technologies of their own to enter the space. Competition. Competition. So the point is this. This is a very new market. It's not a very good one right now, or at least it could be better. But because people have noticed and attention's being brought to the issue, it's getting better, okay? So whether it's predatory or not, just remember this. If it is, it doesn't have to be that way forever, okay? It can change. The forces of reform can be activated. (laughs) Some optimism to start the chat. It is. Um, But, you know, the broader question of all these new kinds of pricing models, like, that's a great, great question. You know, the fee-for-service model, okay, so basically you pay as you go or you pay as you use, the subscription model, the so-called freemium model, right? We have all these technologies now, the digitization of the economy that makes it possible to test these kinds of pricing strategies in all these new domains, in places where they couldn't be tested before because the technology just did not exist. You want more transparency in, you know, what's being charged for, All right. You want to align, I think, the incentives of the companies that provide these services with the customers who actually use them. And here are the canonical examples like in social media. Right. I mean, you don't pay anything for Facebook. Right. You don't pay anything for Instagram and all these other kinds of social media companies. Does that mean it's free? Well, what's being traded here is your data, you know, in exchange for advertising money, you know, and those ads are targeted to you. So you want transparency also in terms of the information that's being used. Okay. So these markets are going to have to evolve over time, and it's probably going to require policymakers to use market design or regulation to give a little bit more information and maybe a little bit more power to the customers who are using these products in some cases. Because that's the big change, I think, over the last like 10 years is just that There's all these opaque corners of these markets, and they're not like bad markets. Like, I think it's a good thing that all these new technologies exist, largely. Like, it's going to be miraculous. You know, it already has been in many cases. But 
uh, you are going to want, again, to align the incentives of the companies that make the products and the people that you know use them. By the way, I don't want to exempt our own little podcast yeah, here exactly. from that. What little money we do make is from advertisers, and the only information they have about our listeners is just how many of them yeah, there are. that they listen. Exactly. But yeah. even then, it's like... They're charging for the number of listeners rather than for, you know, the intensity of how much each individual listener actually likes the show. Yeah. Right. So is there a way to align those two things? Yeah. Well, we're working on it. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a question that we're forever asking ourselves. Yes. Um, but back to back to Bonnie's question and just sort of how we should be thinking about things. I think that point about regulation, definitely something for us to be watching for in the year ahead. Yeah. Regulation or innovation, too. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, the private sector is in some cases capable of coming up with new ideas, new technologies uh, that circumvent the older technologies and that, I don't know, end up providing something better. So look for innovation. Definitely look for regulation. Look for market design ideas that that surface. Okay. All right. Let's move on to the next question. It's from Allison in Reno, and she sent us in uh, a lovely email that I'm going to I'm going to read to you, read to our listeners. Let's do it. Starts off, hello, New Bazaar team. I'm listening to A Hopeful Vision of Work. That's the episode we had a few weeks ago with ZipRecruiter economist Julia Pollack. Back to Allison's email. And you mentioned the millions of people who haven't gone back to the workforce. And you cite fear of the pandemic and caregiving needs as the explanations. I hear this a lot, and it seems to map, but it occurs to me that there might be another reason. COVID restrictions like masks and tests. Where I live in Reno, Nevada, I know just as many people who don't go out to restaurants and public events and are hesitant to travel because they don't want to get vaccinated or wear a mask. Though, to be fair, the people I know who aren't working, me included, are not working for only tangentially related reasons. I went back to school. That was promoted by some lockdown reflections. Another friend went back to school after being laid off. She also had a child to teach, but he is back in school now and she's still not working. Her husband quit to work on a video game full-time, thanks to Stimmies, uh, also known as stimulus checks, savings, and a pause on their mortgage. They had extra money. So all different kinds of reasons why people had extra money. My brother-in-law is back to work now but joined a new profession, so there was a time lag. Anyways, just my thoughts on how the picture is maybe more complicated than the common, quote, child care, COVID fear refrain. Love your new show. So I think, in in other words, getting back to Allison's question here, there could be any number of reasons why people are not returning to work. And it's a little bit more complicated than some of the things that we sort of see in the headlines, which is perhaps a child care or a fear of getting COVID. But as Allison is saying here, she knows just a handful of people, herself included, that have any number of other reasons not to return to the labor market. So how should we think about that? Yeah, these are weird times. You know, we we are still in the pandemic. And... There's a good reason to believe that the main reasons usually given by economists, right, for why it is that a lot of people are not yet returning to the workforce are the main reasons overall, okay? So childcare responsibilities, you can see surveys where this is clear, you know, where people say, this is why I can't go back, or care for other relatives, elderly relatives, okay? Fear of the pandemic, or just the simple fact that because there has been a lot of stimulus provided by the government uh, to this point, some people have built up savings and can, for the moment, afford not to have to take the more dangerous job or the job that maybe they didn't really like in the first place. And that in a hot labor market, which we have right now, pretty hot labor market, they can hold out for a better opportunity. Okay. 
But that doesn't mean that there aren't all kinds of other reasons why people might not go back into the labor force. People have been massively affected by this pandemic in all kinds of ways, okay? Allison mentions going back to school, so some people are doing that, okay? A lot of people who used to have two jobs, second jobs, well, again, for the moment at least, if they have more savings, they can afford to just work one job, okay? And so that second job may not be getting filled right now. And there's other people still who are just sort of waiting to see if something better will come along. And I think that's reasonable. If you hate your job and for the moment you can afford not to do it or you think it's too dangerous, it's understandable that people will wait. And so things are strange right now. And I think Allison is right to bring up these added nuances because everybody's got their own story here. Yeah, I think um, things are strange right now is sort of the best explanation for what we're seeing right now. So our next question is actually not much of a question. It's more just a nice comment, Um, but we're going to read it anyways. Uh, It's from Peter via email. He says, good show. I sent it to my daughter. One bit of feedback. Um, and this is refer- in reference to a previous episode from earlier in the season mm-hmm. with one Stacey Vanek-Smith. He says, never lie in an interview, including about previous pay. HR has ways of finding that out. I know because I lost an offer after they made it when HR found out I'd lied about my previous pay. And then he adds, feel free to use anonymously. Um, Cardiff, this <laughs> runs counter to advice you provided in the show uh, a few episodes ago. What do you think? So, yeah, this was from the Stacey Vanek Smith episode where we were talking about the situation where if you're interviewing for a new job and you're trying to negotiate for a high salary and the interviewer asks you how much you made at your previous job, I consider that to be an unethical question, right? And I and I think that question gets asked because the company that's trying to hire you is in effect also lying about what they can afford. And if it turns out that you're making less money than you want in the new job, they might make you a lower offer, okay? I don't like it, so what I said was, I think, (laughs) at least in some cases, it's okay to fight a lie with a lie, which is uncomfortable advice, okay? But advice that, you know what, I am gonna stick with, right? You know, make it a judgment call, okay? I'm very sorry this happened to you, Peter, but. I'm not going to say you did the wrong thing here, okay? It didn't work out in your favor this time. But I think in most cases, HR can't find out. (laughs) and You should still consider uh, a little mild deception to counter their very big deception. And I'm appalled that a company asks this question. I'm doubly appalled that HR went to the trouble to find out. I think a company should make you an offer that's fair. They should meet your market value, okay? And it shouldn't be based on what you were making before. So screw that company. I'm sorry it happened to you, but I'm not going to necessarily change my advice on this one. Yeah, I I agree with that. You've coached me through a number of negotiations of my own. I think those have worked out. So I'll take it. Thank you for the advice, Cardiff. Um, (laughs) Thank you for the email, Peter. Okay, this next question is from Matt Cowgill via Twitter, and it's about our audience. A little bit of a meta question for us. He says, I'm interested in who you picture when you think about your audience and how that shapes who you interview and what you ask them. I love the exact point you've chosen on the spectrum between accessible to academic, but I'm interested in how you ended up at that point. You want to start this one? (laughs) This is a great question and something that 
you and I have obviously talked a lot in terms yeah. of shaping the show. Absolutely. And the first place to start is that we landed at a place that reflects ourselves, I think, right? We love ideas. We love economic ideas. We get excited by ideas. And we want to try to find people who've done work, including academic work, that communicates ideas, right? And that we think we have at least a decent chance of translating for a general audience of people who, you know, don't spend all their time buried in economics textbooks because they have better things to do with their lives. What else, what right? else could you possibly right. be doing with your time? Um, but who are interested in this, yeah. you know? And so that's kind of where we landed. But figuring out, like, how far along the spectrum towards academic, you know, wonky, uh, nerdy work versus, okay, make sure we keep this accessible to an audience sometimes. Like, it just, it's it's a really tricky question, and it's almost episode by episode, yeah, right? Yeah, completely. I think, how many times have we had the conversation, okay, is this an episode that everyone's going to want to listen to, or is this an episode that uh, we might have a slightly narrower uptake just because it's it's a bit more specialized, and that, I think, is something that we decided is okay yeah. um, from the get. But I sort of think about it like this. I mean, this is a show that explores the way the economy shapes our lives. That just is a big question. And that I sort of think of our potential audience as being part of a big tent, if you will. And so it is the sort of this um, this sort of constant dance to figure out exactly what the right mix is. Um, but that's- yeah, it's helpful that the economy touches literally everybody in some way. There's no escaping the economy. And I don't know, that that makes it possible for us to find things that might seem a little esoteric or weird and find ways that we can actually show people, well, actually, this is this is interesting. This is a big deal. And I, I can think almost immediately of two episodes that kind of fall on different parts of that spectrum that Matt outlines from accessibility to um, academic. To academic, right? Yeah. Like we did a recent episode with an economist named Vicki Bogan just a couple weeks ago. And we just went through her papers one by one. But the papers themselves were fascinating. You know, I'll never forget <laughs> she did a paper about how the gender of your children, if you have kids, if your parents, ends up affecting your investment decisions. Yeah. Like it's just something I never would have thought of, but she did the academic work on it. It's not that hard to translate it for an audience and yeah. to explain why it matters so much. Okay. Then there was another episode we did towards the beginning of the run with Maria Konnikova, the psychologist, which was all about the lessons she learned in becoming a professional poker player where there wasn't a ton of academic stuff in there, but there were great ideas yeah. in there. And so. and if you look at the two of those episodes, I mean, I sort of step back and think both of those episodes are about decision-making. Both of those episodes are about risk appetite. Correct. So there is a very common through nice, line through all of those episodes. Nice find, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, this is my job as a producer. <laughs> it's true. Um, uh, yeah, and I just have to say uh, thanks, Matt. It's always like a real pleasure when you put something out into the world and – your audience sort of reflects back exactly what you're trying to do. And I think that sort of spectrum or that point on the spectrum between accessible and academic is exactly what we're trying to do. So yeah. thank you for and that. And something that creative people, I think, go through all the time of like trying to figure out, you know, what is it that is true to yourself and that people will like, but that also has some relevance and meaning to people's lives, you know, because we always try to make sure that the things that we do are things that actually are relatable in some way, yeah. you know. So anyways, yeah, well, great thanks, question. Thanks, Matt. Our next question is from a listener who goes by Mo. Uh, let's take a listen. Hi, Cardiff. How are you? Hope all is well. Uh, my name is Mohammed, and I live in Peterborough, Ontario, in Canada. 
I have been uh, listening to your show, The New Bazaar, and really, really enjoy it. Um, thank you very much for such thoughtful and um, really deep conversations about the economy. And I, I really look forward to future episodes. Um, I have been thinking about this interesting uh, phenomenon, which is the U.S.-Canadian labor diversion. So if you look at World Bank data of GDP per capita, between 2011 and 2013, Canadian GDP per capita was actually higher uh, than it was in the U.S., but there has been a, a steep decline in GDP per capita in Canada. And, and you know, I'll, I'll attach a snapshot of a graph that if you look up um, Canadian GDP per capita, you see a comparison between the U.S., Australia, and Canada. And there's been a steep decline in Canadian GDP per capita compared to the U.S. So in 2020, U.S. GDP per capita was estimated at 63000 and, you know, a few, hun- a few hundred dollars per capita, that is. And then Canadian GDP per capita was at around $43,240. So that's about a a 32% basically discrepancy between the two. And I wonder what if, you know, if this is within the purview of your interest, I would love to see an exploration of what happened uh, around 2013 uh, that led to this decline in Canadian GDP per capita to the point that we have today, which is, you know, quite a a remarkably stark story between how U.S. GDP and how Canadian GDP have behaved. I hope you're doing well, and I I look forward uh, to hearing from you. Thank you very much again, and happy holidays. Okay, so this might seem like a plant because I'm forever asking to talk about questions about the Canadian economy. You're from Canada, Gr- yes, having grown up there. Yeah. Um, so where? How are you going to respond to this? One? <laughs> so. Uh, essentially, what Mo is asking, uh, Mohammed signed his email Mo, so I'm going to call him Mo. Uh, he's asking why there seems to have been a divergence between the U.S. economy and the Canadian economy starting roughly in 2013, where the U.S. economy kept growing and the Canadian economy, according to this World Bank data, seems to have not just stopped growing but gone into a decline, right? Uh, this requires a certain amount of data sleuthery. Oh, okay. Who would you call for that? <laughs> uh, we called our our favorite data sleuth, Matt Klein, who is the proprietor of the Overshoot Substack newsletter, which is awesome, and a former guest on this show. So we essentially forwarded this to Matt, and we asked Matt to send us back a response. So here is Matt Klein's response as to why it is that it seems, according to this data, that the American economy kept growing and the Canadian economy did not. Hi, Mo. Here's the answer to your question. The numbers you are looking at are all in U.S. dollars. If the U.S. dollar goes up a lot or down a lot, it will have a big impact on the relative GDP of Canada and the U.S. when measured in dollars. From 2002 through 2011, one Canadian dollar went from being worth about 63 U.S. cents to just over one U.S. dollar. Then from 2011 to 2015, the Canadian dollar fell back to about 75 U.S. cents, which is where it's been ever since. In other words, almost all the divergence you're seeing in Canadian and U.S. GDP is a function of exchange rates more than anything else. But Canadians mostly buy goods and services that are priced in Canadian dollars. If you focus on the real value of those goods and services over time based on local prices, GDP per capita in Canada grew by about 7%, while GDP per capita in the U.S. 
grew by about 14% between 2011 and 2019. So there has been a modest divergence in incomes, but it's not nearly as dramatic as implied by GDP at market exchange rates. Okay, I'm just going to interrupt Matt Klein for a second here uh, to say that the explanation so far is that this is all primarily a function of exchange rates, so that if the Canadian dollar weakens against the U.S. dollar, right, that's a problem if you plan to, like, buy a lot of products from the United States, if you're Canadian. Which many Canadians do. Uh, Many Canadians do, but it skews the data if you're only looking at it in terms of you know, U.S. dollars, right? Because the, Cana- you know, the Canadian economy is quite big. It has its own economy that involves things that are not crossing the border as well, right? So you might get the wrong impression that the Canadian economy is doing a lot worse than it is. And what Matt's saying here is that the U.S. economy did grow more than the Canadian economy over roughly the last decade, but the Canadian economy was still growing, Okay. The question that's interesting and that we're left with is why did the Canadian dollar weaken so much against the U.S. dollar that it is giving this sort of illusion of weak economic growth in Canada? Okay. So here is the rest of Matt's response. Oh, great. (laughs) So what's been moving the Canadian dollar? While a lot of things are at play, the simple explanation is that the Canadian dollar tends to move up and down with the U.S. dollar price of Canadian oil exports. The price of oil from Canada's tar sands went from about 36 U.S. dollars a barrel in 2005 to a peak of 78 U.S. dollars a barrel in 2011. Since then, Canadian oil prices have been stuck around 30 to 40 U.S. dollars a barrel. That put a lot of pressure on the Canadian dollar. And given the importance of oil investment and exports to the Canadian economy, The weakness in Canada's oil industry also helps explain why real GDP has grown slower north of the border. Hope that helps. Let's move on to the next question. This is from Twitter once again, from at ProShopGuyMF1. Who is on your list of potential guests that you'd like to interview in 2022? So we don't want to give away the game. No, that would, too that would much, be bad. Right? That would be bad. We can talk about some of the topics we'd like to cover, in part also because we invite people to come on the show, but we can't make them say yes, right? We, yes. <laughs> yeah, we're, we, we haven't figured that one out just yet. But this is what I'd love to cover on the show uh, next year, as, as early as possible. One is we do have an episode coming up on the link between economic growth and creativity and how that relationship might have changed over time. Yeah, really excited about that one. Yeah, that's going to be a good one. Second, we have uh, there's a comedian who's pretty well known and who's quite thoughtful about economic issues and who's done work on socioeconomic issues. And I I won't say who it is, and we don't know if he's going to say yes. I will only say that I have spoken to him before on the air. So see if you can guess who it is from that. And if you're listening, comedian, uh, (laughs) let us know if you (laughs) want to do the the show. show. Yeah, say yes. Uh, Next up, uh, I'd love to to do more work on the U.S. carceral state and mass incarceration and its effects on the economy. Um, Demographic trends and economic growth is a relationship that matters a lot and also one that's hotly debated by economists. 
We're going to do some more international stuff, which I'm excited about, uh, especially on the Chinese economy. There's a few episodes we'd like to do on that. Plus, I would actually like to do more on Mexico and Canada, our immediate neighbors uh, that influence, you know, the U.S. a lot, but also just as a block, as an economic block, uh, you know, the U.S., Mexico, and Canada is just hugely important. So those are some of the topics. And we'd also love to do a series that explains some of the new stuff that's happening in the world of finance. And it explains it in such a way as to not be overly skeptical, overly denigrating, but also not to cheerlead it either, but to actually figure out just what the hell is going on. And then finally, how we work. This is this is a topic that will never get old, at least for you and me, I think. For anybody, I think. Like, so many people work. So yes, it exactly. Matters. You know, how we work is, a, is an interesting topic. And it just is changing so much. You know, perhaps that change has made, been made more rapid because of the pandemic, but it just is changing so much right now. So it's um, there's lots of fodder there. Yeah, and it's up in the air. So, uh, yeah, so hope that, uh, hope that whets your appetite. Hope that piques your interest. Hope that inserts cliche, and uh, and we'll see you. We'll see you next year. We'll keep you coming back. And if you have any ideas, um, we'll we'll give you our email. Our emails in our show notes. But um, we always love to hear from listeners if there are topics that you want us to explore, or if there are guests that you want to hear from. Um, yeah. We always want to hear from you. It's hello at bizarreaudio.com. Yeah, just, just, try, just, just trying to encourage people to <laughs> just, listen to, to the to end. The but end. I guess, but I suppose it's, <laughs> it's all right to, to, to provide right. that uh, that email that is actually just listed everywhere anyways. <laughs> Let's move on to our next question. Our listener, Chris, he sent us in a voice memo. Here it is. Cardiff and Amy, I'm enjoying your show. I'd love to hear your comments on a capital gains tax change that would incentivize holding assets for long periods, say 20 years, and disincentivize holding assets for short periods, say a week or less. This would result in more long-term investments, less volatility in markets, and make both bubbles and recessions less dramatic. Do you agree? Do you think that this would be good for the economy? Thanks. Thank you, Chris. And... We should note for our listeners who aren't familiar with the taxation of capital gains or who maybe uh, are listening from overseas and don't know how the U.S. taxes capital gains, first of all, a capital gain is a pretty straightforward concept. If you buy a bunch of stocks for $10,000 and the value of those stocks goes to $15,000 and then you sell, right, you made a capital gain of a realized capital gain of $5,000, okay? In the U.S., here's how that $5,000 gets taxed. If you bought those stocks within a year of selling them, you basically just get taxed on that $5,000 at the same rate that you get taxed on all your other income. So the, the money that you make at work, you know, your salary, your wages, whatever. Um, if you hold it for more than a year, then that $5,000 gets taxed at a much lower rate, right? I think it goes to as high as 20%, but that's the absolute cap, and that only applies to people who make, like, tons of money, right? There are arguments both in favor of keeping ta- capital gains taxes lower than the tax rates for all the other kinds of income, and there are arguments that say that, no, capital gains, you know, when you make this money, that's income, and you should tax it at the same rate as salaries, right? Okay. I don't have a very strong like point of view on this. I will say this though, in response to Chris's question, if you are going to have a lower tax rate for capital gains, 
it does make a certain amount of sense to incentivize longer-term holdings essentially as a behavioral fix, right? Because if you're incentivizing people to first be wise about their investments, be prudent about their investments, and not just chase the latest thing, okay, that's a good idea, and it keeps people from overly trading, from trading too often, which we know from all the research is really bad, okay? It's a really bad idea. It's an easy way to lose money. You end up paying too much in fees, all right? So as a behavioral fix, I think it makes sense. Uh, to do the more complicated structure that Chris is talking about, which I think means, you know, you get a higher tax rate, the lower amount of time you hold it in up to 20 years, maybe you don't get taxed anything. I don't know. That seems like it'd be pretty complicated to actually implement. Um, so I don't know. But in general, I think it's a good idea to incentivize people to hold something for longer than a year to prevent them from trading too much. We're going to move on to our next listener submission. This is from Rich Skeldon. He wrote us via email. He says, hey, Cardiff and or Amy. Um, lucky for you, Rich, we both answer the inbox. Yes. Here's what Rich says. I grew up in the 70s. My grandparents were of the greatest generation. With one high school diploma between them, each working a factory job, they managed to very much live the American dream. They lived within their means, but they lived very well. Then something happened. A couple somethings, to the best of my research so far. If you look at any financial or wealth chart from 1945 to the present, there's this slow, long, but steady climb in wealth and income for the American middle and lower classes until 1970, depending on the particular stat. Others are more like 1974. And then after that short range, a big change in middle America's finances started. Now, in his email, Rich left us a few more comments, but basically... What happened in 1970? It's a mystery. Okay. It's well. a good economic mystery. <laughs> <laughs> we love a good economic mystery. Look, economists have offered all kinds of reasons for what might have caused the slowdown in economic growth since roughly the 1970s. They debate them quite a bit. Just for a little bit of context here, the decades preceding the 1970s, so the mid-century post-war decades, were decades of very strong economic growth. And it was broad-based. The middle class increasingly was doing better and better. The economy also, especially in the 1960s because of the civil rights movement, had started to become a little bit more accessible to more of the population, right? I mean, the really good parts of the economy, yeah. you know, high-class jobs, that kind of thing. Um, there's still a lot of work to be done on that. But the point is there was improvement in the mid-century decades. And since roughly the 1970s, uh, economic growth has slowed down. Productivity growth has slowed down. Productivity growth is a measure of, of roughly how efficient the economy is. And it's gotten better, I want to be clear. But the pace of improvement is not nearly as impressive as it was in the mid-century decades. So what are some possible reasons? Well, there's a long list of possible causes, you know, the productivity stagnation, rising inequality, the slowdown in population growth, housing regulations. You know, there's been a kind of a chronic shortfall in demand, which is the ability and the willingness of people and companies to spend money, basically. Right. So, like, that is a very basic and broad overview of what's happened since the 1970s. But it is a mystery. But this is where the story turns. Yeah, like a little bit. Yeah. This is where I, I inject a little bit of hope in a difficult time. OK, so first of all, we're going to do a bunch of episodes on this in the coming year. Right. This is a fascinating topic. But I just want to point to what's happened in the last few years in terms of policymaking. OK, 
monetary policymakers, so the central banks of the world, and in particular the Federal Reserve here in the U.S., have been paying more and more attention to the importance of running a tight labor market. Okay, this is the kind of labor market where companies really have to compete with each other to hire workers. Exactly as we're seeing now. That's right. So, you know, it's when companies have to offer better and better compensation in order to attract those workers and all kinds of other things, too. It's not just wages and salaries. It's benefits. It's working conditions. It's, you know, a work environment that people find uh, fair and just and, and void of, like, all the terrible things that can happen at work. You know, so things keep getting better and better. And that scenario only presents itself when the economy is doing so well that there's a lot of jobs available and workers have a lot of options. Okay, so central banks are really paying attention to how important it is to run an economy hot. And so are fiscal policymakers. So this is what the politicians do. They, you know, they tax and they spend money, that kind of thing. They've also been paying more and more attention to the importance of you know, steering an economy to the place where companies not only have to compete to hire workers, but then they are incentivized to invest in technologies that make those workers more efficient, okay? It makes those workers more innovative, all right? So they invest in factories, they invest in tools and equipment and computing power and all those kinds of things, which is also healthy for the economy. So is all of this policymaking energy going to actually make a difference in the coming, you know, five or 10 years? Uh, We'll see. Um, On the side of technological stagnation, well, actually, it's quite possible that there have been a lot of interesting underlying technologies that scientists and companies have been working on for decades, but that haven't yet reached the point where they can be accessed by the broader public and therefore affect the economy itself. It could be that we're nearing that point now, okay? And it could be that actually, you know, as as awful and destructive and tragic as it's been, the COVID pandemic will contribute to our getting there because, for example, mRNA technology, we now have like a massive experiment in its usefulness, okay? And then another one that touches a lot of people's lives is just all of the like remote working technology, you know, cloud computing, teleconferencing technologies. These things have been around for a couple of decades, but they sucked. Yes, Right. Yeah. They and just we weren't very good. And we didn't we didn't have sort of reason to use them because of that. I think of telemedicine actually as a really good example. It's a of great that. example. It was. It's been around, uh, and for for any number of reasons, we just sort of were not incentivized to use it. And it was stifled by regulations, which we realized were stupid because in COVID those regulations were taken down by necessity, and we've seen that it can work. But even more basic work from home technology, you know, the use of Zoom and things like that, it's become way better. And now that everybody's using this stuff, there's going to be more investment flowing in that direction. And that also gives people the ability to, like, work from wherever. So companies can go and they can find workers anywhere in the country and workers can find jobs that are headquartered anywhere in the country. Right. All this stuff sort of feeds on itself. And so the stagnation of the last few decades may just may be coming to an end uh, in the next couple of decades. I'm hopeful anyways. Uh, Don't ever predict the future, okay? So uh, never make predictions, especially about the future, I think, is where I was going with that. But I think think there's reason for hope here, all right? I find it anyways, so. Good. Well, if nothing else, that leaves us with so much to cover on the show next year because it feels like this is going to be a very big trend, a very big theme to watch for. This is a topic that I'm really looking forward to doing some episodes about because 
it's also fascinating. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. technological innovation, how it's going to actually affect the economy, if it will. What are some ways that some of these are going to backfire in the meantime, like the pricing issue yep. that Bonnie brought up, right? Like it, these technologies, as they're adapted, like they be, they're very hopeful. They can be great, but they can also cause a certain amount of disruption, and we have to figure them out. Uh, just remember that when these technologies are introduced, they also sometimes introduce new problems, but those problems are not permanent, right? Mm -hmm. We can always, you know, we can always act in response. So, yeah. yeah. And I think that's it. That's it for that's it for the show, and um, that's it for this year. It is. Shall we uh, take it home with... Uh, we should thank some people. I think we should. We should thank some of the people who helped us get this thing off the ground. So let's start with Subfloor Studio. Absolutely. Scott Lane and DJ Harrison, the theme music you heard... It's awesome. It reflected exactly what we asked them to do. Yeah. Uh, Adrian Lilly, our sound engineer who works wonders with our voices. You think we sound like what's in your ears. Actually, we are intolerable. Well, and uh, there's that. And then there's also every now and then we have the occasional fan or, or you know, any number of other things in the background. And um Adrian hasn't met a background noise that she cannot fix. And she smooths them out. Uh, Francesca Andre did our headshots for our website, which is, by the way, it's up now. Yeah, so, bizarreaudio.com. Yeah, go there. By the way, there's transcripts now. Okay, we're uploading those in addition to show notes, links, and everything like that. So go check that out. Yeah. Uh, Clinton Webb of Agave Studio is uh, who designed our website. Yeah, thanks, Clinton. So it looks great. And the logo for the new bazaar, he designed that as well. Um, we want to thank our very first client, yes. Quartz. Uh, we had the pleasure of working with Quartz very early on in Bizarre Audio history um, on a consulting project, and it was a real pleasure. We want to thank Quartz for taking a chance on us. Yes. By the way, the, the fruits of that project were the Quartz Obsession podcast, which is terrific. Yeah. Season one, yeah. all 10 episodes are out yeah. now. You can listen. Yeah. By the way, just to be clear, we didn't do all the work for it. We, we were the consultants for it, so we don't want to act like we're taking all the credit for it. Yes. But... <laughs> no. We just, uh, we had a great time working with them on the early days of, of that podcast. Yes, indeed. Uh, and finally, thanks to you, our our listeners mm -hmm. for coming along on this ride with us. It's been uh, it's been amazing and incredibly gratifying, especially when we hear from you. And we've heard from a lot of you and we get all of the notes. We see them all. We can't respond to all of them, but we see them all and we really, really appreciate it. And we hope you'll stick around for yeah. 2022. If you enjoyed this show or any of the shows this season, um, please leave a rating or a review. And uh, as Carter just said, we love getting all of your notes. So email us, send us a song, send us a voice memo. That's hello at bizarreaudio.com. And by the way, we are off next week. So we'll pop up again in your feed two weeks from today. So one last time from Amy and me, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.